Good morning, everybody. Welcome to South Valley Community Church. It's awesome to see you guys. My name is Sam, and we are in the second week of our brand new series in the book of 1 Thessalonians called To Wait for His Son. And last week, for those of you who weren't here, Isaac kind of went through the very first chapter, but also laid some really important historical background, both for kind of the Greco-Roman world in which this letter takes place, and also some of the specific things that happen in the city of Thessalonica. So if you weren't here last week, um, we're going to look into some of that again this week, but I really encourage you, check out the podcast or grab a CD, because some of the things that he talked about last week are going to continue to be relevant week after week throughout this series. Today, we're going to look at the first half of chapter 2 which um, is kind of the beginning of the true body of the letter. The first chapter, Paul is kind of greeting and giving a thanksgiving to God. And then here in chapter two, he's going to really get into the beginning of the points he wants to make. Here's how he starts off. He says, For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. Now, it's interesting, Paul, twice, just in these two verses, references the the Thessalonian church already knowing about the thing he's talking about. He's going to do that five times just in the section we look at today, which is only 12 verses, and and he'll continue doing that throughout the rest of the book. It's really interesting. He's, He's affirming things that they already know. One of the things that he's assuming they know about is what happened to him and Silas and Timothy at Philippi. He says, you already know about how we were treated shamefully in that city. And so before we even get into the, the chapter for today, what I want to do is kind of do a quick flashback to the book of Acts that tells the story of what happened at Philippi so that we can be on the same page with the original readers of this letter. And um, again, it's amazing that we have some of the history of what happened around the creation of this letter. Last week we looked at a little bit of that and today we get to also. The book of Acts is a, a, a book that follows the gospels and tells the story of the early church and how the gospel kind of spread right after the resurrection of Jesus. So let's jump back in time. And because it's a flashback, it's in black and white, by the way. Which, so don't ever let anybody tell you that Sam ain't never done nothing cinematic. I ain't never done nothing. Man. <laughs> I, did not, I did not get that uh, Southern in first service, let me tell you. <laughs> I ain't never done nothing. All right, my grandma would be proud. She was from Arkansas. Acts 16, let's get get it back together. And they, they is Paul, Silas, and Timothy at this point, and they went through the region, region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Kind of an interesting side note. You notice how it starts with they and at the end it's we? It's kind of cool. Most commentators think that that's because Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, joined them at some point in the process. So first he's talking about what Paul, Silas, and Timothy did, and then he's talking about what the four of them did. It's very cool. Now it's, it's weird. At the beginning, they have these plans to go in and be missionaries in these cities in Asia Minor, but the Spirit forbids them to do it. And we don't know what that really looked like, what happened if they heard a voice or saw a vision or what, but for some reason, it was not the right time to go there. One kind of um, cool and comforting thing about this, though, is that Peter, later on in the New Testament, 
will write a letter to those churches in those cities where Paul and his companions were forbidden to go. So clearly the gospel does reach there. Churches do get established there. But at the outset, at this point, it's not the right time. So Paul has a vision of a Macedonian man asking them to come and help. Macedonia is a region in Greece that ends up being part of the Roman Empire. It's very famous because it's the birthplace of Alexander the Great, where he came from. And uh, Thessalonica, the city that the letter we're studying was written to, is in Macedonia. So Paul has this vision. They leave Troas and sail to Philippi. And when they get there, some incredible stuff happens. This is a story that Paul assumes the readers already know. And when they get to Philippi, they start sharing the gospel with people, and they get their first convert to Christianity. It's a woman named Lydia, and she's basically a, a wealthy international businesswoman. It says she's a seller of purple, and she's not from there. She's from a, a city in Asia Minor. And so their first convert is this woman who is wealthy, and she kind of takes them in and ends up housing them while they're there in Philippi. So they're going around, and they're working, and they're spreading the gospel. And as they're doing that, they're being followed around by, by the way, we're not, I'm, the reason I'm telling you this is because it's too much for us to look at the whole story. We're just going to kind of jump around a little bit, and I'll fill in the gaps. But they're being followed around by a slave girl who is possessed by a spirit who is able to tell people's fortunes. Super weird. And it's just like a brief part of the story. But this slave girl is following them around and saying stuff. And, and it says that the owners of the slave girl make their money off the fortune telling that she can do. So she's kind of like their sideshow person who they, care, they bring around and she'll tell fortunes and they make money. So interestingly, what she's saying about Paul and Silas and Timothy is true. She's saying, hey, these guys are servants of God most high and they're telling you the way of salvation. But something about it clearly really bugs Paul. And we know that because the text actually says that the reason Paul does something is because he becomes greatly annoyed which I think is funny, uh, makes Paul kind of relatable. So he turns around to this girl and casts the spirit out of her in the name of Jesus. Now, if you are a slave owner who makes all your money off of your slave girl's fortune-telling spirit and somebody casts that spirit out, are you happy about that or mad about that? It's the easiest question I will ask you today. <laughs> You're mad. And so the slave owners drag Paul and Silas before the magistrates of the city. And here's what happens. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. It's interesting. Over and over in the New Testament, this happens. But do, do they accuse them of the thing that they're actually mad about? They don't say, hey, guys, these, they, they ruined our money-making venture by casting a spirit out of my slave girl. No, they, they say what it's going to take to get them in trouble, that they're advocating unlawful customs for Romans. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. This is the kind, I say this all the time, but this is the kind of section in the Bible where you can kind of just read right past some pretty intense things. It's only a couple of sentences, but think about what happened to these men uncondemned, no trial, nothing. The magistrates rip their clothes off and command them to get beaten with rods. And it says they're beaten with many blows. So these guys are just getting publicly beaten and humiliated when they haven't even been convicted of any crime. And then they're thrown in prison. So they get to prison. They're, they're in the inner prison, locked up. Their feet are shackled. 
And it's interesting, the text tells us what they do. And those of you who are familiar with the story, you know they don't call for a lawyer or start like yelling out that they're innocent. What do they do? Anybody know? They start singing. It's crazy. It says they start singing hymns. And the other prisoners are listening to them. And so while they're singing hymns, expressing faith in God that he can do whatever he wants to do, there is a massive earthquake and all of the doors in the prison open and the shackles that are on their feet fall off. And so the prison guard sees this happening and he just assumes that all of the prisoners have gotten away. And so he says, I know what's gonna happen to me because I lost all of these prisoners. So I'm just gonna kill myself now instead of facing the judgment that's coming at me. And so again, you would assume if you're Paul, you go, hey Silas, let's just hang back and after this guy kills himself, we'll be able to get out of here. But instead, Paul comes out and says, hey, none of us left. All the prisoners are still here. Do you see how much Paul cares about the fate of, of even his enemies more than himself? He gives up his opportunity to escape in order to save this jailer. And the amazing thing is that the impact it has on the jailer is huge. He immediately asks how he can become a Christian. Then he brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. So we have another convert to Christianity, this jailer and his whole household. And the story goes on after that. The magistrates realize that they've made a mistake. They threw people in prison who didn't even get a trial. And so they send word like, hey, release those guys. But because Paul is, is awesome, Paul goes, actually, no, we're Roman citizens. And you beat us publicly and humiliated us without a trial. So you guys are going to have to come down here and let us out yourselves. And they do. It's awesome. The magistrates come and they apologize and let them go and they just say like, please leave Philippi. Just get out of here. And so they leave and a church is established there. And it's amazing. This isn't what the sermon's about, but it's, it's really cool to think about the fact that the, the very beginnings of the church in Philippi are this, this international businesswoman, Lydia, a slave girl who had a demon until yesterday, and a Roman jailer. I mean, these guys could not have less in common. It's an incredible challenge. And yet later on in the New Testament, Paul is going to write a letter to the church in Philippi. And, and so we know that a thriving church develops there, even though they get run out of town so quickly. So they leave Philippi and go straight to Thessalonica, which is where um, the church is that Paul's writing the letter to that we're studying in this series. So real quick, let's take another look at verse 2 of chapter 2. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. Does that verse sound a little different now that you see what happened before they got there? I mean, he's not just talking about like, yeah, we were embarrassed in Philippi or people didn't like us or people didn't listen to us. The story is they got their clothes ripped off, publicly beaten and thrown into prison. And he goes, we, we shared the gospel and that's what happened there. And so then we packed up our stuff, went to the next city in Macedonia, and started doing the exact same thing. I mean, the boldness of these men is staggering. No fear. They go and boldly declare the gospel of God in the midst of that kind of conflict. And as you know, if you were here for the sermon last week, things don't go well for them in Thessalonica either. More of the same kind of stuff happens, but they continue to be bold. 
He says, for our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness, nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. This section with no context reads kind of defensive out of nowhere. Like, why is, like, Paul likes this church. Why is he like, suddenly sort of defending his honor in this way. But what we need to understand when we read this is that the, the Greco-Roman world in the first century is filled with these traveling philosophers and public speakers from all sorts of different disciplines of philosophy. And some commentators and scholars actually talk about how these guys were basically like the touring rock stars of the ancient Roman world. Like they would go to a new city, these are experts in different philosophical systems, and they would come in with like great pomp and excitement and incredible rhetorical skill and, and public speaking ability and gather a crowd and use that to make money. And I mean, that's a super cynical way to look at it. There were probably some genuine philosophers who wanted people to know the philosophy, but the general pattern was this is how they made their living, and many of them made a really good living this way. So what Paul is doing in this section is something really important for him to do. He is distinguishing himself and his companions from that brand of traveling orator. Does that make sense? So he's going, I didn't do the stuff they did. There was no greed. There's no attempt to deceive. There's no words of flattery. I'm not trying to make any demands, even though it would be well within my rights to do that. It's well within my rights to be supported by you guys, but I didn't do any of that because we're not like these other guys. We're not hustlers. We're just telling the truth. He's explaining how different he is from that brand of speaker. He says something really interesting in the middle. He says that they have been approved by God and that they please God who tests their hearts. It's kind of an interesting detail. Those two words, approved and tests, in the Greek language are actually the same word. It's a verb, and it's just two different tenses. So the first one has like the force of past tense. It's actually perfect tense, but here it's, it's describing something that happened in the past that has ongoing effects in the future. So he said, he's saying before we even started our ministry, God had already approved us. The second time where it says tests, it's the same verb again, but this time it's in the present tense. And so he's saying, not only did God approve us, but God continually checks and evaluates our hearts, our motives, in an ongoing way. It's an, it's an incredibly powerful endorsement of him and his companions saying, no, we're not just charlatans coming in to make money off of a new philosophical system. God has approved us. He evaluated and approved us. And even now, he is continuing to check and test what we're doing, that it's valid, that it's legitimate. So we're not like these other guys. This is what we're like. We were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. I have a uh, four-week-old baby, as most of you guys know. So, so that image of a nursing mother taking care of her children is incredibly powerful and immediate to me. But those of you guys who have, who have witnessed this or taken part in this in some way, you know, man, that it's hard to come up with a more powerful, more intimate kind of familial metaphor to describe the intimacy, the love that Paul feels for these people. He's not like a philosopher teaching. He's not like a ruler lording anything over them. He is like a nursing mother feeding children. That's how he views this church. 
He loves them so much, he didn't just share with them the gospel of God. Him and Silas and Timothy also shared their own selves. It's actually the Greek word for soul, but, but self is a great translation. The biblical understanding of the soul is not this kind of like thing that's separate from you. It's, it's who you are, what you are. So he goes, my very self I shared with you, not just information, but me. Show me another traveling philosopher who's going to do that and do it for free. The point here is that the message is authenticated by the fact that they weren't tied down or kind of uh, marred by all of these other motivations. Finally, he says this, For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So first, he starts once again by saying, we didn't burden you guys with supporting us, even though we could. It's really clear throughout the New Testament that Paul believes that ministers of the gospel have a, a very legitimate right to be supported by the people that they're teaching. But, a totally like a self-serving side point there, by the way. Come on, that was funnier than that, you guys. Jeez. I, if I make fun of myself, I deserve at least a smattering of laughter. He says, I was, I, we did not want to be a burden to any of you. There were probably some rich people in Thessalonica, but far and away, the, the church in Thessalonica is characterized by extreme poverty. We know that because in a later letter that Paul writes to the church in Corinth, he says about Macedonia that they had horrible poverty and yet were incredibly generous. And we'll look more at that later in the series. But the point is, he goes, look, we're not going to compromise our message by being supported even by rich people like the traveling orators might have done, or by putting a burden on the poor in the church. We supported ourselves. They worked with tanners in the streets to make money to support themselves. And he talks about how like a father with his children, they exhorted, encouraged, and charged the people to walk in a manner worthy of God. I don't want to spend too much time here because later in the letter, Paul is going to, to talk more specifically about this kind of thing. But it's important to note that this idea of walking in a manner worthy of God, walking is, is a, a common metaphor for how you live your entire life. And he says, what did we do? We pushed you, we exhorted you, we encouraged you, we charged you to do this. In all of Paul's letters, 100% of the time, the moral expectation that people who have been saved by Jesus live morally upright lives, it's never something that's like an option or something that's like for extreme radical Christians. The assumption is, if you have been saved by Jesus, if you are a, a member of that kingdom that he's talking about, you start living now as if you were a member of that kingdom. And there's no expectation that people are going to be perfect right away. And they certainly don't think, none of the authors of the New Testament, that that's what saves you. But having been saved, the expectation, the assumption, the thing that Paul is using three different verbs to say that he pushed them with, is that, man, if you are in this kingdom, you walk like you are. Like I said, we're going to see more of that. We're also going to see more of this kind of royal theology at the bottom, the kingdom and glory of God. So we're not going to go there now. Paul is foreshadowing some of the stuff he's going to talk about later in the letter. But if you're a member of this kingdom, you walk like it. But it's awesome. He doesn't, it's really clear from, from the beginning of the sentence. He's not like saying, hey, I'm the boss. And so in like a hierarchical, authoritative way, you guys all listen to me. 
He says really clearly, the way I exhorted you was like a father with his children, not like a master with a slave, not like a boss with an employee, like a father with his children. Just like he talked, compared himself to a nursing mother. The metaphor, the way Paul sees this church is family. I love you like my kids. That's why I'm pushing you in these areas. It's really important. Because a lot of the time we miss that. And a lot of the time the way we do church and the way we encourage and exhort people isn't with that tone. But Paul, as bold and brave as he is, he loves these people like, like they're his kids. Now, I want to spend the rest of the time looking at, at a phrase that Paul uses several times in this passage. Some of you who are, who are paying super close attention might have noticed that Paul used one particular kind of conspicuous phrase three different times just in this section alone. He says, the gospel of God, three different times. First, he says they had the boldness to declare it to them. Then he says they were prepared to share it with them. And the last time he says um, they, were going to, they were proclaiming it to them. But every time it's the gospel of God. Same exact Greek phrase every single time. And so the gospel of God is the content of the message they're delivering. Everything else we've talked about so far is the manner in which they're delivering that message, right? Different than the, than the Greek traveling speakers with familial genuineness and love. But this is the content of what they're communicating. And that phrase, gospel of God, just the, the, even just that word, Gospel is a word that we have loaded up with so much kind of modern meaning as Christians that I think most of the time we completely miss what that word would have meant to the original people hearing it. And if you've been coming to this church for a long time, there's a good chance that, that some of you have heard some of this already, but it's so important we have got to look at it again. Does anybody, somebody did in first service, so the pressure's on, anybody for a million Jesus points, which are redeemable for nothing, <laughs> For a million Jesus points, anybody know what the Greek word for gospel is? Euangelion. Nice. Yeah, give him a round of applause. He gets how many? 10,000 Jesus points? A million. Oh, sorry. I, I reduced it by a lot. <laughs> now that I have to pay him out, I got to be a little more stingy. Euangelion. And the reason I'm putting that word on the screen is because I want us to kind of get out of the headspace of thinking of the word gospel. Because a lot of us think of the effects of the gospel, the things that the gospel does, and we start to imagine that that is the definition of what it is. Let me tell you what I mean. We might think that, well, the gospel is how you get to go to heaven when you die, or the gospel is how we get saved from sin, or the gospel is how we follow Jesus. All of those things are incredibly important effects of the gospel, but none of those things are what the gospel actually is. And understanding this word and what it meant to people in the first century Roman world is, is an incredibly important step to understanding what Paul's argument is here. So Isaac talked last week about the history of the Roman emperors during this time. And I'm gonna just briefly cover it again, but super fast. So if you weren't here last week and this is interesting to you, again, check out the podcast. But the gist of what Isaac told us about last week is that Rome, as a nation, had been a republic for hundreds of years, up until about 100 years before the time of Jesus. And they were like really happy with being a republic. They had had emperors before. We'd had enough of that, thank you very much. We like our Senate. We like being a republic. All of that changes when a military leader named Julius Caesar marches into Rome and takes power and becomes the emperor. And those of us who were forced to read Shakespeare in high school or the even smaller percentage of us who liked it and read it on purpose, 
Bobby Trout probably, I'm guessing. <laughs> you know what happens to Julius Caesar. What happens to him? He gets assassinated. Yes, the people who paid attention in English class. He gets assassinated by someone named Brutus. I don't know if that's historically true, but it's in the play. Now, he gets assassinated, and that creates a power vacuum because the traditionalists really didn't like the fact that they had an emperor again, but at the same time, there's all these different people claiming rights to the throne. So a stepson of Julius Caesar, eventually through basically just a horrifically bloody civil war, ends up taking control of the emperorship and makes Rome solidly into an empire again. This is a guy named Octavian, but we know him as Caesar Augustus, the first Caesar Augustus. Now, Caesar Augustus, by the time he's reigning, rumors have already started to spread that his father, Julius Caesar, had ascended to the place of the gods. And that makes, that makes Caesar Augustus what? If his father's God, he's the son of God. So Isaac talked last week about how anywhere in the first century Roman world, if someone says son of God, you don't think Jesus, you think Caesar. It's king language. Son of God in the first century Roman world, first and foremost meant you're the king, you're the emperor. Now, Caesar Augustus starts advancing throughout the known world and taking over more and more territories. Rome was already powerful, but it's getting bigger and more and more powerful. And he's spreading what he calls the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. And ironically, the way he does that is usually through horrible violence and military overthrows. But he's establishing the Roman Empire, and the propaganda of the time is that the farther the reach of the Roman Empire spreads, the better it is for everybody. Because you get peace in your region, you get a solid empire behind you, and everything's good. So, here's where it starts to matter for what we're talking about today. When Caesar would conquer new territory, it usually happened on a battlefield that was separate from where people actually lived. So in the places where people actually lived, heralds would be sent out with a message to deliver. And they would say something like this. Hey, everybody, good news. Caesar, the son of God, has become king here. Congratulations. You have a new, wonderful king. You can entrust yourself to him. He's going to bring peace to you. Awesome. Great. Good news. Second easiest question you'll get asked today. Guess what that message was called? The gospel the euangelion, the good news. The good news was the son of God is king. It's crazy, right? The good news was Caesar Augustus has become king here and that is a good thing for you. You have a good new king, trust him, serve him. So, when Paul says things like the gospel of God, three times in 12 verses. He does not just mean some kind of spiritual reality. He doesn't mean the gospel of God as in the, the information about how you become a Christian and get saved and go to heaven. The primary meaning of gospel is an announcement of something that already happened. It's not how you get to go to heaven. That's something you do. The gospel is primarily, fundamentally, something that Jesus already did. And again, like I said before, the impact, the effects of that announcement, the effects of that victory that you're announcing include how, you get, how you're freed from sin, how you live with Jesus forever, all of those things. But those are effects, they're outcomes, results of this great victory. And the gospel is fundamentally an announcement of that great victory. So, when Paul shows up somewhere and says, hey, everybody, Good news. The Son of God has become king of the world. Oh, but it's not Caesar. It's Jesus. 
This is the gospel of God. Does it surprise you at all that he keeps getting beat up, thrown in prison, stoned, flogged, thrown out of every city he goes to? That's not remotely surprising. This is not some kind of high-minded spiritual idea. To the Roman Empire, it sounded a whole lot like treason. At South Valley, we wanted to come up with like a, a quick, concise definition of what the gospel announcement is. And there's no way to do this perfectly, but, but we think this one's pretty good. We've been using it for a few years. We say it's the announcement of the victory of Jesus over Satan's sin and death through his life, death, and resurrection. A new king has achieved a great victory on your behalf. There's a new king in town. Entrust yourself to him. This is a good thing for you. Do you see how Paul's using counter-propaganda? He's, he's taking Roman imagery, Roman ideas, and applying them to the true king. The son of God has become king of earth. It's just not Caesar. It's Jesus of Nazareth. A carpenter who turned into a traveling teacher and miracle worker who got killed on a Roman cross and whose followers say rose again three days later. I want to ask you, do you think of yourself, those of you who are Christians, and, and if you're not, as we always say, you are more than welcome here. We love having you here. Keep exploring these ideas. Keep trying to take seriously the claims of Jesus. But those of you who are Christians, do you think of yourself as a bearer of that message, as a herald of that announcement? So I'll be honest with you guys. For most of my life as a Christian, the good news, what I thought the good news was, sounded a lot like bad news to me. Seriously. Because it was something like, hey, and I don't mean to disparage this because this type of evangelism did incredible things and, and God used it, but it sounded like this. If you get into a car accident after you leave this conversation, do you know where you're going to go when you die? Spoiler alert, it's hell. <laughs> that's bad news. Now, for a lot of people, that's true. So I don't want to downplay that. But the point is the announcement is not that. The announcement is there's a new king who has, through his victory, purchased your freedom from that. Entrust yourself to him. It's good news for you. But man, that gospel that announcement, that requires a seriously radical devotion. And if I, if I look at the state of Christianity in the Western world, I just don't see a lot of people who are living like there's a different king, like there's a different kingdom, like there's a king who won a great victory and who's coming back to seal the deal in the future. Paul announced a gospel that got him in trouble with the authorities in every city he went to. Jewish authorities didn't like him. Roman authorities didn't like him. Nobody who didn't believe him liked him. Because what he was saying was a radically political, real-world reality. Caesar's not king. Jesus is. Do you want to bow before the armies of Caesar or before the cross of Christ? Those are your two options. And of course it got him in trouble. Now, as we try to make announcements like that, I have just a few applications that I want to talk about. Um, we, we look at Paul, and Paul says things like, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And so as we seek to imitate Paul, just in this passage alone, I see a few specific things about how he proclaimed the gospel of God that I think we can learn from. 
The first is that he did it in the face of persecution without fear. We saw that in Philippi, we saw that in Thessalonica, and all over the rest of the book of Acts, you'll see that if you read it. Starting from Acts 16 on, that guy does not stop getting beat up, shipwrecked, flogged, thrown in prison, stoned, over and over again. And he's not afraid of that. We saw that with how he went straight from Philippi to Thessalonica. Now, most of us um, who live in this country have never faced real persecution like that. Isaac talked about this last week. Um, For us, the concern is usually about being socially ostracized or having people think we're weird or being less accepted. And and, and I don't want to, again, I don't want to downplay that because that's our reality. And that can be extremely hard and it can be extremely daunting. But Paul faces extreme persecution without any fear at all. It's something to admire. It's something to aspire to, something to try to imitate. And by the way, just because we haven't had persecution in the world that we live in for the last hundred years, a couple hundred years, doesn't mean we never will. You know, we, we pray and, and hope that God will, will continue to protect his church, but man, if we look at the writing on the wall, how many of you guys feel like it's gonna get easier to be a Christian in the United States over the next 50 years? Anybody? It sure looks like it's gonna get harder, right? And when it does, if it does, The wheat will, to some extent, be separated from the chaff. People who really believe that Jesus is king of heaven and earth, who are willing to face persecution for it, will stay. But when persecution comes, people who don't really know who he is, who haven't actually bowed the knee to a king, people who think he's just their buddy, their co-pilot, they'll fall away. So we need to develop habits now. We need to teach our children to develop habits of fearless proclamation of the gospel so that now if we're facing social ostracism, we can handle that, and in the future, if it gets more serious, we and the generations that follow us can handle that. The second one is is without pretext. Paul is primarily, when he talks about presenting the gospel without pretext, he's primarily talking about not being seen as like a traveling Greek philosopher. None of us have that particular concern, right? Are any of you worried that people are gonna confuse you for a traveling Greek philosopher? No? Okay, good. Um, But there are other ways in our culture, in our world, that we present the gospel with pretenses. I'm totally convinced. The the first thing that occurs to me when I think about this is a a sort of hyper-contextualization of the gospel that kind of matches um, what Greek philosophers did to win crowds high rhetorical skill, trying to make it sound like exactly what somebody wants to hear. And guys, I'm, I'm the mission pastor here. I believe in contextualizing the gospel and trying to make it relevant for the people. That's in the New Testament, clearly. Paul does it. Paul's actually gonna do it later on in that chapter. But what I've seen us do and what I've seen myself do is, is give almost like an apologetic gospel. And I don't mean apologetics like in the sense of defending the faith. I mean like I'm sorry. Like we round off all the rough edges of what the gospel actually is and, and, and sort of, if we're brave enough to present it at all, it's sort of like, sorry, do you like it? You know what I mean? I'm not trying to tell you to be offensive. I'm just telling you the gospel, if it's preached accurately, will be most of the time. It doesn't need your help. So it's great to try to be kind and loving and soften the edges, but, but man, it can go too far. And I've seen it go too far where you get a, a gospel that's completely neutered, that has no power anymore because it's just what people want to hear. And so, man, those Greek philosophers, they would go in and with rhetorical flourish and power would present something that people would like. Paul doesn't do that. Paul presents something that gets him beat up and thrown out of town. 
And finally, Paul says, not to please man, but to please God. This kind of wraps around the other two. But I'm convinced, man, that Paul's secret, the reason he's so brave, the reason he's so incredible, is because he does not care what any human beings think about him. He just doesn't. Look at his letters. Look at what he does in the book of Acts. That guy does not care. He goes, I'm going to tell you the truth. And if you want to beat me up, that's fine. If you want to follow Jesus, better. But I'm not going to water it down. He's only concerned with pleasing God. And so I just want to invite you to consider today what would it look like? What would your life look like? What would your engagement with Christianity, with the gospel look like if you did not care what people thought of you but only cared what God thought of you? I'm about a million miles away from that, by the way, just to be clear. I'm like a classic people pleaser. I told the people in first service, I spent a long time this week trying to make this sermon something that you guys would like. So clearly, I am, I am trying to please man on some level. Imagine what we would be like if we only were concerned with pleasing God. And again, we wouldn't be jerks. We'd be more loving. We'd be more helpful. We'd be more open. But we would be bold. We would be fearless like Paul was. So I just want to invite you guys to imagine that reality and then try to take little steps towards it, to value the opinions of others less and to consider the opinion of God more. And if you don't know what God might think about something, it probably means that we need to spend more time in his word, understanding what he's like, understanding the things he loves, the things he values, the things he expects and desires from his followers. I'm going to close with, with this thought, and I think it's really, really important, something that's been heavy to me this week. The gospel of God is the story of how God becomes king on earth. Now, he's always been king, so don't, don't misunderstand me there, but it's the story about how God claims his kingship, how God claims victory on earth. Caesar and Rome did that through military might, through marching across the land, crushing everything in their path. That's how they advanced the UN Galleon of Rome. Jesus claims victory by not crushing his enemies, but by allowing himself to be crushed for his enemies. That could not be more different. It's not military might. Jesus doesn't march on Rome, march on Jerusalem with an army behind him. He could have done that. A lot of other Messiah figures in history did that. Tons. Some of them had rabbinic, uh, like, validation. There were rabbis saying, oh, this guy's the Messiah. And they got armies, and maybe sometimes they won small victories, but eventually they all got stamped out. Jesus doesn't raise an army. Jesus goes, no, I want my enemies in the family of God. And the way I do that is I die for them. Rome didn't kill Jesus. Jesus lays his life down for his enemies. So will you be shaped, let your values be controlled by the power and might and gospel of Rome or by the cross of Jesus Christ because they are not remotely compatible. Not remotely. And if you're a Christian, it means that, that your value system has to be reshaped by the cross. It means that, man, the way you view things like power, the way you view things like victory, the way you view your enemies has to be obliterated and replaced by the picture that's painted by Jesus on the cross dying for his enemies. You guys, I know this is incredibly difficult, but man, 
We serve a king who puts a cross on his back, marches outside of the city, and dies for his enemies. That has to define our value system. That has to define the way we approach the world. And the only reason, I'm convinced, the only reason, the only way this can possibly work is if we know he's coming back. That's why this book is so significant. That's why we called it To Wait for His Son. It's a line from the first chapter. Because Paul is over and over again going to talk about the coming kingdom. And guys, there are things about Christianity lived the way Jesus tells us to live it that make absolutely no sense if Jesus isn't coming back. You know that? Read 1 Corinthians 1 if you don't believe me. Paul talks about the fact that the, the wisdom of God makes no sense in the world. The commands of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount make no sense if he's not king. If he's not king and he's not coming back to claim his kingdom, then man, the way he tells us to live is impossible and nonsensical. But if he's coming back, then we can do this stuff with with incredible boldness like Paul did. Because we know that, that persecution and suffering and social outcasts and everything horrible and, and painful about this world is temporary, will not have the last word because Jesus is going to come back and right every single wrong. Paul said in chapter one, wait for his son who delivers us from the wrath to come. I just want to call us to try to allow our lives to be reshaped by the victory of the cross, by the gospel of God, by the way he wins victories, and to know that we can do that in the face of persecution, in the face of difficulty, in the face of embarrassment, because we know how to wait for his son. So I want to invite the, the prayer team to come up and we're going we're gonna to close here and, I, and I'll pray for us. And then if you need prayer for anything, I want to invite you to come forward and be prayed for by these men and women. Um, but yeah, you guys, as we continue to dive into this book, look for the way Paul views the world in light of what Jesus has done. Don't let your worldview filter his words. Let his, world, let his words transform your worldview. Father, I'm so thankful to you. I'm thankful for the example of your son, the mighty king of heaven and earth who could have crushed his enemies, but I would have been among them. And so instead, you told your followers, take up your cross and follow me. And they probably shook their heads and said, what on earth are you talking about? Take up, take up the cross, take up the electric chair, take up the hangman's noose and follow you? What are you talking about? But then later that year, you took up your cross and led the way and showed what it looked like to humble yourself to the point of death, even death on a cross. So Lord, I pray that you would make us bold heralds of the gospel of God, of a completely different way of living in this world, of a completely different way of viewing power, of viewing danger. Let us rush on into the work you've called us to, announcing your victory, calling people to entrust themselves, to give their allegiance to the rightful king of heaven and earth. And help us to do that with boldness, without pretext, and not to please man, but to please God. We love you. Help us to anxiously await the return of your son. In Jesus' name, amen. Be blessed. Have a good day.